Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to the Just Pod. Today we have Rory Little joining us. Thank you, Rory, for being here. Happy to be here. Great. Well, Rory Little is the Joseph W. Kachet Professor of Law at UC Hastings College of the Law. Rory also leads the criminal justice section's panel at the annual meeting. It's called the Annual Review of the Supreme Court Term Criminal Cases. And that panel will be Friday, August 9th at 3 p.m. And finally, Rory has previously clerked at the Supreme Court, which is why we've invited Rory to join us today. Rory will be walking us through the October 2018 SCOTUS term, criminal cases. There's obviously a lot to cover, so we're just going to jump right in. So, Rory, let's begin with just an overall discussion point around liberal and conservative leanings in the Supreme Court. So criminal justice cases don't always break down in a neat liberal versus conservative block way. Do you see any trends or anything of note in the ways that the cases broke down this year? Well, yeah, it was a very interesting term, actually. We have two new justices, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch. It was Justice Kavanaugh's first full term. And there were 24 cases, which you might call criminal cases, on a docket of about 70. So about a third of the cases or more are criminal. And this term, there was a very interesting five to four division in a number of cases that didn't break down on liberal versus conservative. So you had Justice Ginsburg and Justice Gorsuch joining together. Gorsuch viewed as a conservative, Ginsburg viewed as a liberal to dissent in a case called Gamble. You have Justice Breyer voting with the conservatives in a case called Mitchell, a Fourth Amendment case. You have Justice Kavanaugh writing a pro-death penalty defendant case, Flowers, with some other people, conservatives, uh, dissenting. So interestingly, there were something like 10 different alliances to create five to four decisions this term which shows there's a lot of flexibility in a number of the justices' views on criminal law topics. That is interesting. It'll be interesting to watch as we move into the next term this year. So sometimes the most interesting comments are in the dissents. Were there any dissents in criminal cases that you thought were interesting or worth noting for future cases? Well, dissenting opinions are really necessary to understand the majority, so it's, it's good that they're dissenting opinions. Let me just say that in this criminal law area, Justice Gorsuch has clearly staked out a sort of libertarian view, which tends to favor the defendant occasionally. In the Fourth Amendment case, he favored the defendant. In a case called Davis, Unconstitutional Vagueness, he favored the defendant. Both of those were reminiscent of Justice Scalia who used to dissent in those same cases. And Justice Gorsuch, of course, took the seat that Justice Scalia vacated when he died so unexpectedly. One of the interesting cases in dissent is a case called Gundy, where the dissenting position in a five to three decision argued before Kavanaugh was there, took on something called the non-delegation doctrine and basically threatened to re 
invigorate a doctrine of non-delegation, which hasn't been around since the 1930s. Justice Alito wrote a short concurring opinion saying, you know, if another case comes along, I'm willing to do that too. That was a criminal case delegating to the attorney general the authority to decide who has to register as a sex offender. And they upheld the statute in that case, but the dissenting view suggests they're going to revive that doctrine if they get another case. Okay. A lot of people were anxious to see what the bench would look like with both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh sitting on the bench. Could you see a split between Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on criminal issues? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to generalize, but we can certainly look at specific instances where they did disagree. And they disagreed in different ways. Justice Gorsuch is, I think, pretty clearly more conservative than Justice Kavanaugh on certain issues that are important issues today. At the same time, as I mentioned before, Justice Gorsuch has a libertarian streak, which occasionally makes him vote for the defendant when Justice Kavanaugh is voting for the government side. So most prominently in a case called Flowers, it's a death penalty case involving racial discrimination in the selection of jurors, Justice Kavanaugh writes for the defendant's position in that case. It's a death penalty case. And Justice Gorsuch is one of the dissenters. I think it's pretty clear that Justice Gorsuch is more conservative on the death penalty than Justice Kavanaugh. That doesn't mean Justice Kavanaugh is going to go out and strike down the death penalty, but it certainly suggests that there's a difference. On the other hand, when Justice Gorsuch is voting for the defendant in a Fourth Amendment case, Justice Kavanaugh is more institutionally favoring the government. Same is true in the unconstitutional vagueness case called Davis. So there are differences. Now, The liberals don't always agree either. Justice Sotomayor doesn't always agree with Justice Kagan, but she pretty much does pretty pretty regularly. So I think we'll just have to see how it develops over time. Justice Kavanaugh is a new justice, and usually a new justice is a little bit hesitant to break too often with the chief justice. Justice Gorsuch doesn't seem to have that problem, but Justice Kavanaugh voted with the chief justice uh, pretty consistently this term. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's jump into more of the criminal cases, some that stood out. Can you first walk us through the opinion delivered in Gamble versus United States? Yeah, Gamble versus United States, a very interesting case. It involves the double jeopardy clause. And in this case, a guy named Gamble was prosecuted for being a felon in possession of a weapon under Alabama state law. He pled guilty. He got a year in jail. And then the federal government also indicted him for a federal offense, felon in possession of a weapon, really the same crime. And he ended up pleading on that case and got three additional years. Now, he argued that this violates a double jeopardy clause. Double jeopardy says you can't be placed in jeopardy twice for the same offense. It turns out there is a longstanding precedent going back to 1852 and even earlier which says separate sovereigns can prosecute for the same offense, and the federal government is a separate sovereign from the state government. The court was asked to overrule those precedents. They were asked to overrule the separate sovereign exception to the double jeopardy clause, and they did not. So in a lopsided decision, seven to two, the court declined to overrule the precedents which have this separate sovereign exception to the double jeopardy clause. So that means they affirmed Gamble's conviction and he got an extra three years for basically the same crime. 
majority was written by Justice Alito, who tends to favor the government in all criminal cases. He's a former U.S. attorney from the state of New Jersey. But interestingly, both Justice Ginsburg and Justice Gorsuch dissented. They wrote separate dissents. They are ideologically pretty separate. And both of them stressed that the individual liberty of the defendant should sort of trump the exception for separate sovereigns. So they voted to overrule the exceptions. Now, this involves a doctrine called stare decisis, which we heard a lot about when Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were being confirmed. Will the court stick to its decisions from the past or will they overrule them? And what are the principles that they should use to decide whether to overrule or not? There's a great value in sticking the precedent, even if you think the precedent might be wrong, because stability in the law is worth a lot to people. On the other hand, we shouldn't stick to decisions that are clearly wrong. Brown versus Board of Education obviously overruled an old precedent, and everybody thinks that was exactly right. So these dissenting opinions by both Ginsburg and Gorsuch suggesting that sometimes they should overrule a longstanding set of precedents, you know, has implications beyond the double jeopardy context. It also raises people's eyebrows a little bit. What's going to happen when Roe versus Wade gets to the Supreme Court? Now, that's not necessarily a criminal case, at least not yet, we hope. But the doctrine of stare decisis was very, very large in this Gamble case. And so if people want to read about stare decisis and read about why it is that separate sovereigns can prosecute the same offense, gambles the case they want to read. So it's noteworthy that in Flowers versus Mississippi, the court decided that a white prosecutor violated the Constitution in excluding potential black jurors at the sixth trial of Curtis Flowers, who is on death row in Mississippi. This appears to be an egregious racial bias, especially interesting because it is a death penalty case. What impact do you think this will have on the courts? Well, I think the Flowers versus Mississippi decision is a really huge decision. And again, it was written by Justice Kavanaugh. The chief justice was part of the majority. It was seven to two. He assigned it to Kavanaugh, the newest member of the court. This is a sort of a big case to assign to the new justice. And meanwhile, Justice Gorsuch was one of the dissenters in this case. So there's another split between the two of them. The facts were outrageous. And some people say, well, they were so outrageous that it's not going to be a very strong precedent. But I actually think that's wrong. I think this is going to be a huge precedent for how to analyze the prosecutors who strike African-American jurors or jurors on the basis of other ethnicity, jurors based on gender strikes. The analysis of that question, which we call a Batson question, it's named after a case called Batson, written by Justice Kennedy in 1986. Justice Kavanaugh, of course, clerked for Justice Kennedy, but so did Justice Gorsuch, and they split in this case. How should we analyze it when a prosecutor strikes almost all the black jurors and offers what are called neutral reasons, non-racial reasons. And the trial judge says, well, I think those are neutral reasons, so it's not a problem. In this case, the U.S. Supreme Court reached out and overruled the Mississippi Supreme Court's decision that there was no problem here. The, the prosecutor in this case, same prosecutor, white prosecutor in a very small rural county in Mississippi, tried this case six times, and out of 42 jurors over six trials, 42 potential black jurors, he struck 41 of them. So there's only one out of 42. The court found that to be pretty significant. The Mississippi Supreme Court actually reversed some of the prior trials because of racial bias. And yet 
this county kept trying the case with the same prosecutor over and over. So they, the, the Supreme, this is very significant. The U.S. Supreme Court would actually reach out and say, look, this is racial bias, even though the state Supreme Court found there wasn't. I think it's going to change the way lower courts have to analyze these questions. It'll give defense attorneys quite a bit to argue when there are strikes based on race, even when the reason offered is neutral. So one of the last interesting things I'll say about Flowers, Justice Thomas wrote a dissent. Now, Justice Thomas, of course, the only African-American member of the court, wrote a dissent. And he basically said, I think Batson was wrongly decided. I, I think you shouldn't be able to do this. He was the only one to say that. Even Justice Gorsuch did not join that part of Justice Thomas's dissent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that's not going to be, it's not going to happen in the future. They're not going to run away from Batson. But it is somewhat um, unusual, I guess I'd say, to see the only African-American on the Supreme Court saying that we should get rid of this one case that seems to protect African-American jurors. You're right. That's not what I've, I think what many people would expect to see. Yeah, wouldn't it be great to get more of his explanation for why he chose to do that? But we can all refer to the dissenting opinion, I guess, too to see more of his explanation. And for our listeners, if you are interested in seeing that, the ABA Criminal Justice Section website does post summaries of the opinions of SCOTUS. So you can find the summary, but also we link to the actual opinion. So should you be interested in understanding better Justice Thomas's dissent, you can read that. We have links to that on our website. Okay, so let's go back into the criminal cases. We also found the Timms versus Indiana case to be interesting. I know this is one that many expressed interest in seeing how it would turn out. Can you walk us through the case and the delivered opinion? Sure. Timms versus Indiana. Timms is T-I-M-B-S. It's both an interesting case, and frankly, nobody thought it was a very hard case once the Supreme Court decided to answer the question. So Mr. Timms, was arrested for uh, distributing heroin, small amounts of heroin, but heroin. And to do that, he drove his car. So the state of Indiana, like most states, allows the forfeiture of anything that is used to facilitate a drug transaction. So the state of Indiana, after he pled guilty to this distribution offense, sought to forfeit his car. Now, his car was worth $42,000, and he had purchased it with insurance proceeds from his father's death. So the purchase of the car was not related to the drug dealing. And $42,000 was over four times the maximum fine permitted for the small offense that he pled guilty to. So he said, look, you are violating the Constitution's Eighth Amendment excessive fines clause. This is a clause that says, you know, there shall be, first of all, in the Eighth Amendment, no cruel and unusual punishment. And then it says, nor shall excessive fines be permitted. Interestingly, the United States Supreme Court has never ruled that the excessive fines clause applies against the states. So the Indiana Supreme Court said, you know, the excessive fines argument that Tim's is making is not one we have to follow because it doesn't apply against the states. That's called the doctrine of incorporation. Is the excessive fines clause, is the Bill of Rights incorporated against the states through the 14th Amendment, which was enacted in 1868, which says no state shall deny due process 
the Supreme Court has over time incorporated almost everything in the Bill of Rights against the states, but it had never said that about excessive fines. So once they granted review in this case, we all thought, oh, well, for sure they're going to incorporate it. And in fact, they did. It was unanimous in the result. In other words, the excessive fines clause now applies, applies against the states, and it applies to forfeiture actions of assets. There were seven justices joined the majority opinion, which Justice Ginsburg wrote. She wrote a very short opinion. She said, look, we've incorporated everything else, and we're going to incorporate this. Justice Gorsuch simply wrote a concurring opinion saying, I agree with the majority because they applied our precedents faithfully. But I also think Justice Thomas has a point. Well, here's Justice Thomas, again, staking out a lone position. He did not dissent. He concurred. But he said, we should not be using the due process clause to do this. We should be using the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment to say that you can't use an excessive fine against someone because it's a privilege and immunity. Now, he staked out that position before uh, when they incorporated the Second Amendment back in 2010 in a case called McDonald. And a lot of people think it's an interesting argument. Let me just make one point really strongly here. The text of the 14th Amendment says that due process protection is available to any person. That's a quote, any person. But the same text of the 14th Amendment says that the protection of privileges and immunities only applies to citizens. Now, nobody discusses that in this opinion. It's a very short opinion. But the distinction between protecting all persons and protecting only citizens obviously is a really important point today. And Justice Thomas's opinion would not protect anyone who's not a citizen. So I think it's pretty consistent with his conservative, very conservative view that people are just not protected very often under the Constitution. And I think sooner or later, they're going to pick this up and somebody's going to have to say something about it because there's a big difference. So the, the, the small holding, excessive fines is incorporated against the states. Everybody expected that. This big dispute as to exactly how is that done through the 14th Amendment, that's going to be a huge issue in the future. Well, we'll look out for that in the future then. All right. So one final case for us to walk through today is Garza versus Idaho. Can you provide us with an overview of this case? So, yeah, Garza, I think, is a case that seems to have flown under the radar for most people. But I really think criminal litigators and particularly defense attorneys should be able to get a lot of action out of this case, Garza. Garza versus Idaho. So what happened is Garza pled guilty to a criminal offense and he signed a plea agreement. And the appeal agreement says that he agrees to waive his appeal. It doesn't say anything more specific. It just says, I agree to waive my appeal. After he had pled guilty and was sentenced, he went to his lawyer. He had a lawyer and he said to the lawyer, would you please file a notice of appeal for me? And the lawyer said, no, I'm not going to file a notice of appeal for you because you signed something that says your appeals are waived. Uh, and I think that could be a problem. Now, exactly why it's a problem, the lawyer didn't say, uh, but the dissenting opinion in Garza says, well, it could have been a problem because Idaho might have thought that was a breach of the plea agreement and they might have gone after Garza for more time. Uh, of course, we have no idea because there's no record on that. So what happened is the period for appeal expired because nobody filed a notice of appeal. And Garza then filed a motion for post-conviction relief saying his counsel was ineffective for not filing it. And in this case, the Supreme Court agreed with Garza, written by Justice Sotomayor, the opinion is six to three, 
And Justice Sotomayor basically says, even though somebody files a plea agreement, which says appeals are waived, if they ask their lawyer to file a notice of appeal, the lawyer needs to file that notice of appeal. It's ineffective assistance not to file a notice of appeal when your client asks you to, even if they file an appeal waiver. And she says two important things about this. First of all, filing a notice of appeal is not a problem if you're a lawyer, even if you think there are no valid appellate grounds. Your job is to file the notice of appeal because that's the defendant's decision. And if you don't think there are any grounds, you don't have to go forward with representing them for the appeal. You can withdraw, you can file what's called an Anders brief that says there are no valid issues, but you have to file the notice. So it's deficient performance not to. The second thing Sotomayor says, and this is even more important, she says, even when you sign an appellate waiver, some appeals can still go forward. She says some appellate issues are never waivable, which is a very important point. Mm -hmm. And one of them is whether the agreement, the plea agreement that you signed with the waiver in it, whether that was actually voluntary or not. You can always challenge the agreement itself as having been involuntary or done under the influence of drugs or something like that. So she says, you know, even an appeal waiver doesn't prevent you from filing an appeal and maybe there'll be some issues there. Now the state of Idaho said, well, but he doesn't have any of these issues that are possible. And Sotomayor says, look, we don't care. We are going to presume prejudice. We're not going to make the defendant prove that they have a valid issue. We're not going to make him prove prejudice. We're going to presume prejudice when the deficiency of the lawyer deprives the defendant of the entire appellate process. So the dissenting view here says, wow, you're kind of depriving uh, the government of the value of an appellate waiver. And they have a fight about which is better to let them file the notice of appeal, even though they waived it, or to make them do it through post-conviction proceedings and show ineffectiveness. But it's a very strong ruling. And I think this is so common today. Even though you filed a waiver of appeal, you can still file a notice of appeal and pursue some grounds that might be still available. And so does this go against what we've seen play out in other cases or how common is this? Good question. So here's what's interesting about this. The Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, has never had an opinion before on appeal waivers. Appeal waivers are used all the time, all over the country, in every state and the federal government. And lower courts have often written opinions going one way or the other on various aspects of appeal waivers. But the Supreme Court has never had an opinion on the topic before until this one, Garza. So this one came out in favor of the defendant in a pretty strong way. So I think it's going to have to change what lower courts do when they analyze these appeal waivers. A lot of lower courts have said sometimes there'll be something we call a miscarriage of justice. And so we should allow appeals even when there's a waiver for miscarriage of justice. The Supreme Court doesn't actually endorse that in Garza. They just don't say anything about it. Here's what's important about that for the criminal justice section. Our criminal justice standards, which we adopted for the defense function and the prosecution function just a couple of years ago, actually wrote a new standard on this topic for both prosecutors and defense attorneys, saying that appellate waivers shouldn't block everything and that prosecutors shouldn't demand them and that defense attorneys should challenge them. And I'm really, I was the reporter for the standards and I'm really proud of that standard in particular. I will say Professor Ellen Yarshevsky, who is in New York, 
also wrote the bulk of that standard. And so uh, she should be feeling pretty good about this too. Great. Okay. Well, thank you for that added insight. So before we conclude, let's take a look forward. Now that we've been reflecting on this term, what important criminal law cases have been granted for review in the coming term starting in October? Well, they've granted already at least 10 cases, which are pure criminal law cases, very interesting. And they've granted another eight cases, which are sort of semi-criminal law. So for example, there's five or six immigration cases there's a couple of civil cases that would impact criminal law. So maybe about 18 cases total. And that's, again, somewhere between a third and a half of the docket. Here's some important issues. Very first day of the term, is there a constitutional requirement that criminal law juries must be unanimous? There's still one state, maybe two states, that allow non-unanimous criminal jury verdicts. You can be a defendant and be convicted 10 to 2 or 11 to 1, maybe even 9 to 3. Most people think that should be unconstitutional. They've granted a case called Ramos, which will decide that issue. Another case on the first day of the term is going to be called Kaler, K-A-H-L-E-R. Is it constitutional for a state to abolish the insanity defense, not allow any defense of insanity, even for someone who's insane? That's a big case. There's a couple of big death penalty cases. There's a Fourth Amendment case. There's a Second Amendment case involving a weird law in New York, which may disappear because New York is trying to change its law so that the case will be mooted. And there are another half dozen cases on habeas issues, immigration issues that directly involve criminal implications, the foreign immunity of foreign countries for acts of terrorism. So uh, it's going to be, again, a very interesting term starting in October. Well, we'll look forward to that then. Uh, Thank you again for joining us, Rory. And as a reminder to our listeners, for those that are in the San Francisco area, at the annual ABA meeting, there will be a panel called the Annual Review of the Supreme Court Term Criminal Cases. And again, that panel will take place Friday, August 9th at 3 p.m. And you can find more information for that on our website. So thank you again, Rory, for joining us today and walking us through these cases. My pleasure. Thanks for letting me speak to people about these really important cases. We really appreciate your insights and look forward to your panel in August. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.